Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. As we continue in our study of, jo- of Joshua, we will be in chapter 7, making our way all the way through the chapter. And so turn there, if you will. We'll start there here in a moment. I trust you all have had an enjoyable week. I pray that you have. Um, I don't know how many of you are basketball fans, uh, but I trust there's at least a few in here that got caught up in the excitement of March Madness. Um, it's kind of our God-given American duty to get excited about it, right? I think, I think it's a good thing to get excited about. Um, here locally, we had excitement as the SEMO men's team made it for the first time in 20-some odd years. That's very exciting. Um, and all of the nation, or many people like myself in the nation, watched the excitement unfold as the tournament began. Um, if you aren't familiar with the tournament, um, it is pretty interesting as you have teams from across the nation that never play each other otherwise and then they get matched up in this significant high stakes arena for the sake of trying to get to the national championship and every year the tournament brings with it a a bunch of drama and some exciting ends. One of the most exciting early games was between Furman, a university most of us have never heard of, uh, ranked number I believe a 13 seed playing Arizona or 15, it was 15 right? 15 versus 2 seed, uh, meaning Furman was not supposed to do anything, and yet they played this much more significant, much larger university closely throughout the game. Despite how closely they fought, it looked like at the end that Virginia, the Goliath in the competition, had the game in hand, and yet, despite that appearance, with a little less than 10 seconds left on the clock, I believe, when all Virginia had to do was receive an inbounds pass and just hold on to the ball and let time expire... Virginia player inexplicably feeling the pressure of the opposing team's defense decided to hurl the ball down the court in an attempt, no doubt, to, to throw it to an open teammate to spend the rest of the clock out. But much to his horror, and no doubt to the horrors of anyone who filled out a bracket, uh, much less anyone who was a Virginia fan, that attempt failed miserably. And his pass was caught at midcourt. And as time dwindled down to nearly nothing, the Furman team managed to pass the ball forward where they hit the game-winning shot, a three-pointer with only about two seconds remaining. It was a shocking, incredibly exciting end, as exciting as basketball can be. And like many people, as I watched that, and no doubt as the players on the court experienced it, the question, of course, was, how can a collapse like that happen? Here is an experienced player playing for an elite basketball institution. He has been in that situation countless times. I trust is a better basketball player than I will ever become. And yet, despite his experience, despite his skills, he broke. And he went against everything that he was trained to do up until that moment. And as heartbreaking as it was, in that mistake, in that collapse, he watched his team lose the game, and he was sent home packing. That's a disappointing end for them. Of course, exciting for Furman, but tragic for those individuals that were sent home with the loss. It is easy to be critical of players in the midst of that environment. It's easy to assume they were acting utterly foolish. It's easy to assume even for someone like me, I would never make such a significant mistake. It helps since I would never play in a collegiate basketball game. But of course, if If we're honest, and if we're a a bit more understanding, we know exactly what happens in those moments. With all that pressure weighing down upon that young man, with that pressure bearing down on him, and with, with so much hope and anticipation of what the next round would bring, he just for a second forgot where he was 
on the court. He forgot all that training. He forgot, in essence, who he was and the abilities he had. And because of that, in that loss, he experienced that defeat. Even if we do not experience that sort of frustration and heartache on the basketball court, we all experience that regularly, where inexplicably we make decisions we know are foolish. We fall into temptation that we know is utterly disgusting and shameful, and in the minutes that follow that temptation, that follow our failure, we are left thinking, what happened? How could I be so foolish? How could I forget so much? And then we can start beating ourselves up, of course, and believing that, that nothing will ever change. We can never recover from such a loss. As understandable as that feeling is, it's not the position we are commanded to be in as believers. And in fact, as we come to Joshua 7, we see this, this tragic example unfold before us. For we see something far more heartbreaking, far more shocking than anything that has ever occurred on a basketball court. We see the downfall of the nation of Israel. The people of God who have been living high, who have been seeing God miraculously work in their favor every step of the way in recent chapters. We see them collapse, fail miserably, and in the process feel that they are utterly hopeless. Yet in their despair, as chapter 7 unfolds, we see, just as they saw, what it would take to get back. We see this incredibly helpful reminder of not just who they are, but more importantly, who God is. And as we see who God is, we are reminded of what it looks like to then walk in obedience in response. As we examine this chapter today, we examine a chapter that is difficult. As Pastor Josh mentions last week, it, it is a weighty concept, but it should be. For it deals not just with some unique experience of victory, it deals with the holiness of God and what that really means. And it forces us all to question, as we sing of the holiness of God, as we praise the holiness of God, do we really mean it? Do we really know what we're talking about? As we examine today, we walk away hopefully with better appreciation of that holiness, and in turn, we might better understand why we are prone to fall short. And what it means then to walk in obedience, what it means to expose the sin that still indwells. With that being said, let's go and begin our time in prayer and ask for God's blessing on this chapter and on this message. Bow with me in prayer, if you will. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, as we come to Joshua 7, we come to a chapter that is difficult. It is weighty. It's tragic. But God, it is so important for us to understand it. For in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of its violence, we are reminded both of who we are as sinful, fallen, vulnerable man, and we see more importantly who you are, a holy God who does not change, whose standards do not shift, but who rules over all and who calls us to live in obedience to him. God, as we read this chapter today, might we read it with humility, not being overly critical of the Israelites, but seeing ourselves in their own plight. Might we read of your holiness and, and respond not with just sheer terror, but appreciation. And out of that appreciation, God, might we read in this account a reminder of what it looks like to be devoted to you, a reminder of the reality of sin, of the constant danger it presents in every single one of our lives and a reminder of why we need to do our best to weed it out, 
to rid ourselves of it and do so by keeping a constant eye fixed upon you who is our Savior, who is our King, who is our Master. God, use this time this morning to open the eyes of the unbelievers who are here. God, save them from their sins. Might they see in your holiness a call to repent. And use this time this morning, Lord, for us as your children to be reminded of what it means to be devoted to you, God. And might we walk away from here all the more encouraged to follow you, all the more willing to do what you say. For you are perfect and your word, God, is perfect. Bless our time now, we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, as chapter 7 opens up, it opens up in the midst of great success, doesn't it? For Joshua, chapters 1 through 6 tell us nothing but success, good news for these Hebrew people. We've seen those successes chapter after chapter after chapter, for we've seen them follow the ark of the Lord across the Jordan. You remember that miraculous entrance into the promised land. And we see them experience something that that is probably beyond anything we can possibly imagine now for for they are able to experience the Passover celebration in the promised land for the first time. What a gloriously joyful moment that must have been for the Israelites. Most significantly, as we've seen in recent weeks, we see them follow the ark of God into Jericho. And we see God deliver his people through this city in the most unlikely of fashions, in a, a, a clearly miraculous battle at the end of which we read in chapter 6 verse 27 so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all of the land and at this moment it would be hard to believe that anything bad could possibly occur who could possibly touch the Israelites after they defeat Jericho the way they did and yet in the blink of an eye it's gone For as chapter 7 opens up in verses 1 through 9, we see this sudden account of an utterly shocking loss. Follow along with me as we read that loss, both in terms of their devotion and really their identity, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regards to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now the sons, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up, spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So... About 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabrim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over to the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back on their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth, And what will you do for your great name? If all you know of Joshua 
is chapters 1 through 6. These opening verses of 7 should astound you. They should shock you, for this represents a complete collapse of the Israelites. And in this collapse, we see two clear losses, two clear ways that they veered off their path. The first and perhaps the most obvious is there in verse 1, isn't it? For in the midst of the victory at Jericho, we are told that, that one individual, Achan, but his sin is accredited to all of the nation, one man acted unfaithfully. And you see here this, this loss of obedience, this loss of devotion to Yahweh. The author here does not give us the full details of his act of disobedience. We'll see that later in the story. But from the beginning, the author wants us to see how serious of a sin this is. And he does so by calling it unfaithfulness before God. The same word is used later in the book of Joshua to describe blatant acts of idolatry. So you think of literally bowing down before false altars. That is on the level of the sin of chapter 7, verse 1. And the sin is committed in the midst of that miraculous win. As Yahweh is proactively leading his people through the battle into victory, the son of Achan, or Achan, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, forgets where he is. He forgets what he's supposed to do, and he acts faithlessly. He acts in idolatrous fashion, and as he does so, we are told he takes things that were under the ban. That ban, of course, applied to everything in Jericho, as they were told not to take anything but destroy it. Pastor Josh went over that last week. But Achan ignores it. And we are told in response that the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel burns against them in a similar way we see the anger of the Lord burn against them in times of the wilderness. Again, in moments of idolatrous pagan practices. You think about Mount Sinai when Moses is visiting himself getting the Ten Commandments. And as he is meeting with God on the mountain, what are the people busy doing in the camp? Oh, erecting golden calf and saying this is the God who brought us out of Egypt and bowing down before that God. They do so, of course, because in part, this is the practice of really any of the nations at that time. But in their idolatrous practices, they do that which is utterly wicked and defensible. And just as God's anger burned towards the sons of Israel, Mount Sinai, it burns towards them here in Jericho, here in the Promised Land. That loss... That failure is shocking enough, and it's incredible to think of, of what that must have been like for Achan, but as the account moves forward, we see it wasn't just a loss of obedience. There, there's a loss of identity at play in the story, isn't there? For in verses 2 through the end, we see Joshua, who is unaware of this act of faithlessness, unaware of this idolatry, decides to, to keep this train going. We defeated Jericho. Let's keep this battle plan moving forward. What's the next city? Well, it's Ai, and we don't know a whole lot about this city. There's a lot of debate as to its exact location. It gives us a few details here, specifically east of Bethel. And it's believed this would have been a, a strategic attack as it's an entry point into the hill country of Canaan. So from an earthly perspective, you can see why they would want to move forward. Strike while the iron's hot. The people are afraid after all. Why not continue to capitalize on their victory? And so Joshua from an earthly perspective, in a very logical manner, sends out spies. Check out the city, he says. Let us know what it looks like. The spies come back with a very 
unlike, uh, a response very unlike what the spies typically do in the story of Israel, right? Typically they're fearful, convinced it's not going to work out. In this case, there seems to be no fear at all. These spies come back and they say, Joshua, it's a piece of cake. Don't bother with everyone like we had to send to Jericho. No, two, three thousand tops. Leave everyone else at home to rest. Two, three thousand men can easily handle AI. We'll take over the city, no doubt presuming that God is still in their favor. For they wouldn't have been able to read verse 1 like we read. And so Joshua, following the advice of these individuals, not consulting the Lord, not following the ark, sends 3,000 men out just to be safe. And after they go out, of course, we read in very quick succession that they experience defeat. And they run away, and, and the text here does not speak of a slaughter by any means, for it says only about 36 of their men ran, and, or 36 of their men were, were killed. And yet, while it wasn't a slaughter, look with me again at verse 5 and, and see this very significant phrase used to describe the people of Israel. For describing them at, this, at the end of this account, we read, the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men, pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The hearts of the Hebrew people melted. They became as water. Now, where, where have we heard that language before? Where have we heard another description of, of people whose hearts melted out of fear? Well, if you recall, we've seen it here in Joshua, haven't we? But is that term ever describing the people of God? No. For up until this point in the story of Joshua, whose hearts melted? The Canaanites, the Amorites, these people that see the Hebrew people, that see what Yahweh has done, and they understandably and rightly respond in sheer terror because they know they're going to get killed. You recall that back in chapter 5 of Joshua. In fact, just look back and you can see one of these very powerful examples. For we see in chapter 5, verse one, it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel and until they had crossed, their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because the sons of Israel. Rahab, the harlot, uses the same language to describe the individuals who inhabit Jericho. When they saw the people of Israel, their hearts melted because they understood who they were connected to who Yahweh is. And they knew there was no competing with this. There was no chance they had. The Canaanites were right to respond in that way, for they were about to be slaughtered. But the people of God, they lose one battle, and, and they lose it all. Their hearts melt. And they are left in verses 5 through 9 in this utterly perplexed state. Well, it's clear there's more going on than initially meets the eye. For in response to this defeat in verses 6 through 9, you have this, this moving picture of Joshua. This, this moving picture of grief and utter confusion that Joshua feels, no doubt, in the same way that all the Israelites feel. For here, for the first time in the story, they actually fall before God. He seeks God out. He falls on his face before the ark and he cries out to him. And as he does so, we see yet another shocking phrase used. 
or in his prayers in verse 7, what does he say? Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us to the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Suddenly you realize this is a new story in Joshua 7, but these are not new people. This is the same story we've seen over and over, isn't it? For the similar language is found elsewhere in the wanderings in the wilderness. For when the people in the wilderness struggled, what was their cry? What was their complaint? If only we could have stayed in Egypt. If only, God, we could have dwelt elsewhere, then things would have been better. Moses, in a very similar manner to Joshua, cries out in a very similar way to God when he speaks of of this failure and says, God, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to your name, God? What will you do to save us? Joshua here seems to have lost all hope. The Israelites as a whole seem to have, as a result of this one loss, taken a giant step back into the wilderness. Completely confused. Hopelessly lost. With a faith that seems to be trickling down to nothing. It is as if in this moment, Jericho never happened. And Joshua at the end of this verse, seems reserved to the point of understanding and assuming all is lost. All has been taken away. Because surely now, the Canaanites will regain their power, they're going to come, they're going to kill us, God, and then what? As readers of the story, and as people who know how the story ultimately ends, it's easy to mock Joshua a bit, isn't it? Perhaps we wouldn't use that language, but it's easy to step back and say, Joshua, what's wrong with you? Don't you remember Jericho? You remember how you blew on some trumpets and a city collapsed? That that just happened, Joshua. Remember how how God stopped the waters of the Jordan and you walked across on dry land, Joshua? That just happened. Remember, Joshua, how you crossed the Red Sea? That wasn't all that long ago either. Remember, Joshua, how God has been so faithful to you. How could you say something like this? How could you, O people of God, be so foolish as to just presume upon the favor of God and move on with the conquest of the land as if you no longer needed him? How could anyone be so short-sighted? But of course, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been in those moments where we're living life and things are comfortable. Perhaps we've even seen God answer great prayers, requests that we've had for years, and we've seen undeniable pictures of his goodness, of his favor, undeniable experiences of his grace. And then something goes wrong. And in our fallenness, and our weakness, our knee-jerk response is, God, where are you? Why would you allow this to happen, God? How could this possibly be according to your plan, God? We immediately, in our own pride ultimately, but in our sin, we immediately assume that God has lost control of the situation. And so we find ourselves, perhaps some of you even this morning find yourselves in a similarly dark moment. And certainly if you're one of these Israelites, the natural question is the same of Joshua. What now? 
How can we possibly recover from this? How can victory be regained? How are they going to be able to pick up the pieces and move forward? It's a significant question to ask. But of course, even in asking that question, it assumes that the answer lies in the power of the Israelites themselves. Joshua himself is assuming, of course, that things are going to work out the way that humanity assumes they'll always work out and even in his prayer then just as he did in this action to go up to ai there seems to be a forgetfulness of the god that they serve in the midst of their confusion what they most need here isn't a clear plan of what's going to happen next what the israelites need here as what we always need in the midst of confusion it's a very quick reminder not of who we are not of what's going to happen next but a reminder of who god is a reminder of, of his own holiness. And we see God do exactly that in verses 10 through 15. From the midst of, of Joshua falling on his face before God, suddenly God speaks. And we read, picking it up in verse 10, So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you've fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, and they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have, put also, they have also put them amongst their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore, unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you've removed the things under the ban. In the morning then you shall come near by the tribes and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. In the midst of Joshua's heartache, and in the midst of experience just utter darkness, God speaks. You can argue that his response is a bit curt, isn't it? For it's not gently lifting Joshua up. It's, what are you doing, Joshua? Get up. And as God speaks, it's almost as if he shakes Joshua from his slumber and he immediately reminds him of one important fact. That fact is, is that in the midst of all this confusion, God hasn't changed. And most significantly from the beginning, God is reminding Joshua of God's own unchanging standard. For as he awakens Joshua to the reality of things, he says, you want to know why this has happened? It's because the people have broken the covenant, Joshua. They've taken things from the band, Joshua. Not only that, they brought the stuff back and placed it back in their own camp. They have blatantly broken my very clear commandments. And as blunt as it may seem God is being here, he of course is being truthful. For God's standards for his people are never a mystery in the Bible. 
You read from the time God sets his people apart and, and read through the book of Exodus, read through Deuteronomy, read Joshua 1 through 6. God has constantly given the same message. You are my people. You are to be a holy nation set apart. He gives command after command after command to show them exactly what that means, exactly what that requires. In this particular instance, God has been utterly clear regarding the ban. Again, if you were here last week, Josh mentioned the numerous passages in which you can read of this command specifically in light of the conquest. But for the sake of reminding us and jogging our memories, just consider the words from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, in a command given to the people regarding what they are to do when they come into these foreign cities, and these cities in Canaan, God says this in Deuteronomy chapter 20, Beginning in verse 16, he says, only in the cities of these people, he's speaking of conquests and cities they're able to inhabit, only in the cities of these people the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as th- so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods that you would sin against the Lord your God. God was never uncertain in what they were supposed to do in these situations. They were to utterly destroy it. Utterly destroy everything there. And as, as harsh as that is to us, and I understand it sounds harsh, the concern is always ultimately for God's glory so that he would show himself to be infinitely greater than the so-called gods of the Canaanites. It was for the protection of the people. They wouldn't be stained. They wouldn't become corrupted by these other people groups, by their practices, by their materialism, by any one of the things they will find in their cities. And so time and time again, in his command, the people are told, do not take anything within these cities in which the ban is applied. Destroy it all. Let nothing survive. Again, this is for the sake of God's glory, but also for the sake of his people. That standard never changed. And what also has not changed is the result. For God says, as a result of taking these accursed things, the sons of Israel now are accursed, just as God said. You take the stuff, you are, you are now under a curse. You take the stuff, I am not with you. I will not make you prevail in victory. And God simply says, this is the standard I've always given you, Joshua. This is what has occurred. It's a bold wake-up call, a shocking revelation. Certainly, brand new news to Joshua. What is not news, however, what is not new is the next part, the familiar call that God gives Joshua in response. The people have fallen short, Joshua. They have corrupted themselves, Joshua. They are all ultimately responsible, Joshua. So now what do you do? Verse 13. You rise up, you consecrate yourself, and you consecrate the people. And yet again, just as we saw with that phrase of of the people's hearts melted, we come now to another phrase that ties us back to earlier parts of the story. For when the people are told to consecrate themselves, they understand this is not the first time they have been told to consecrate themselves. This act of consecration, this idea of, of ritualistically cleansing themselves, setting themselves up to be purposefully ready to see God at work, has been something they've done before. When? Well, if you recall earlier, It's been a while, I understand. But if you recall earlier in the book of Joshua, as they were prepared to cross the Jordan, they were told to do the exact same thing. 
from preparation of crossing the Jordan. In Joshua chapter 3, we see the same command given. In Joshua 3 verse 5, Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders amongst you. Consecrate yourselves, Israelites, so that you will remember who you are, so you will remember it's God who works. If you recall, when we went through chapter 3, that language wasn't even brand new there, is it? No, it, it takes them back to an even more important, more significant date, that date being the day before Mount Sinai, for when they come to Mount Sinai, what were the people of God told to do? Consecrate yourselves, Israel, for you're about to see God. You're about to hear from God. So you must be ready because you must remember this is not about you, this is about me. It is about God. And so every time the people of God are about to do something significant or see something significant in these moments in history, they're told to take a moment, to, to take a beat, take a breath, step back, purify yourself, for you are about to be reminded of who God is. It's almost as if having fallen back into the wilderness, God is, is dragging them back to the Jordan. God is showing them, I'm, I'm not done with you yet. You're still here. Come back just as you came back at the Jordan. Consecrate yourselves now and you will see me at work again. And that work is detailed there in verses really 13 through 15 where God explains exactly what he's going to do. He's going to bring these consecrated people forward and in a manner that is clearly divine, he's going to slowly but surely narrow down this camp. Tent by tent, family by family, person by person, until he shows them exactly who is responsible for this wicked act. God does this for a variety of reasons, no doubt. Decisions or reasons why he does not explain here. But we certainly can see him be at work where he is He's giving them a process by which the people of God are forced, really forced to think through two things, right? This process of winnowing it down. First and foremost, God is, is awakening his people to a reminder of, of what it means to be a nation set apart. He's reminding them that when your brother sins, you sin. You are impure by the actions of others. He's reminding them then that they all must do this together. He requires this complete devotion. So he's awaking them to their own awareness of the involvement that has occurred. As he does this, he still stresses the guilt when it comes to the individual party. But even when it comes down to that party, he is forcing these Israelites to decide whether or not their desires really line up with the desires of God. Whether or not they really are for this law regarding the ban, whether or not they are for Achan, ultimately, or if they're for God. In other words, he is telling them and, and really challenging them and saying, you claim you serve a holy God, but do you really mean it? Do you understand what this requires of you? That same question will be asked in multiple ways and multiple times throughout the book of Joshua, and it is always equally convicting and should always cause all of us to, to pause. For as we read of God's holiness, as we're reminded of the fact that this is who he was in Israel, as we prayed together just earlier in the service, we were reminded that this is the same God we serve today. For Hebrews says our God is still a consuming fire. Peter says our God is still holy, therefore we are to be holy. 
in the midst of our own sin, in the midst of our own frustrations, in the midst of our failure, it is so vitally important to do exactly what God is speaking of here, to take a step back and to remember what we know. Namely, to remember the God we serve. What are his standards for us? As we try to justify our sin, what is God's standard? What is God's response? As we try to question his wisdom, who is sovereign? Whose rule is unquestioned? Whose authority is ultimate? It is God. And as we try to, to again, figure out exactly what God wants for us, we must ask ourselves, are our desires in line with that? Do we really understand and appreciate the holiness of God? It's only when we do that we can appreciate then the fervor with which we are called to serve him. So Joshua is given this clear, very clear reminder. The people of God and Israel are given this very clear reminder. And we too are given this reminder. And it's the shocking loss. The call is not to simply curl up into a ball and wish it all to go into an oblivion. The call is to get up, to open our eyes, and to focus not on the loss, focus not on frustration, but first and foremost, see God. See his glory. To see his holiness. And it's only when we see that holiness that we can then appreciate what that careful return into his blessing, what that careful return to his presence requires. That return is detailed in verses 16 through the end of this chapter where having been given this clear command of what to do, Joshua and all the Israelites for the first time in chapter 7 finally act obediently. They finally have the clear mission set before them, and they, to give them credit, respond in, in complete obedience. For in a similar manner that Joshua had sent spies out to spy out the city of Ai, here in chapter 7, verse 16 and following, he sends spies out, or sends individuals out, to gather up the people. And so these people come forward, and as the chapter unfolds, as the story unfolds, we see this, this beautiful but still tragic yet still very helpful picture of what occurs every time we are exposing sin. Every time we're really examining where we've fallen short and what it requires to get past it. For as you read verses really 16 through 22 and following, you see sin exposed for all of its folly. And it begins immediately with the clear lie that Achan had believed that his sin was secret. For the story picks up, Joshua rose early in the morning, brought Israel nearby tribes, and the tribes of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near. He took the family of the Zerahites, brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man. Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah was taken. Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, Give glory to, God, to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. See how cowardly Achan acts here. As if it was not enough to see his fellow brothers die by the sword in battle, Achan now silently comes forward in this process, still seemingly convinced he won't be found out. The gall of Achan in this moment to stand silently knowing full well that he is the guilty party. Yet he just stands there, looking around, 
I can imagine Joshua saying, all right, Achan, and he's looking around saying, oh, me? Oh, me? I, I, I don't know what's going on here, folks. It is so utterly foolish, for it is obvious that God will find him out. It is obvious his sin cannot be secret, and yet, as he insists upon it, he does what all of us do when it comes to our sin, for we all assume our sin is hidden. We all assume we can make our own sinful choices, and we do it in in the secret of our own room, we do it in our own mind, we do it in our own speech, and we assume somehow that we can get away with it. That God doesn't see, of course we would never say that, but that's how we act. We speak horribly vicious things to co-workers or to family members and think that somehow that doesn't speak horribly to our own faith, that, that somehow that's not going to affect us. You see people repeatedly in our culture commit blatant sins and yet then act shocked when they are found out. Again, uh, my mind is on basketball because the tournament, I think of the humor of watching any sporting event. You can watch a player just bash someone over the face, and then when they hear the whistle, they say, what? I didn't do anything. And it's comical to watch their response as if they are genuinely surprised they got a foul called on them. And as ridiculous as it is, that is us. For we sin, and we face consequences our knee-jerk response is, what? No, surely not I, God. Because that's what sin does. It promises secrecy when really it just causes us to become cowards, desperately hiding from the consequences of our sin. What is perhaps even more challenging, though, is not just that lie of secrecy, but, but see the response of Achan. For when Joshua confronts him, we see Achan himself admit it and and speak of the same process that we should all know full well for he says verse 20 truly i have sinned against the lord the god of israel and this is what i did i when i saw amongst the spoil a beautiful mantle or robe from shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold 50 shekels in weight i coveted them and took them and behold they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. To give Achan credit here, he admits it. But as he admits it, he again reminds us of the sheer folly, foolishness, folly of all sin. And he describes this process that, that we all know all too well. For in the midst of this battle, again in the midst of experiencing the, the blatant goodness of God, something catches his eye. It's not a person. He doesn't seem to to care about that part of the band. He's willing to participate there. But what is it? It's a robe, and it's some money. This man is in the midst of conquering an entire land, has been told that God will give them city after city after city. Each tribe will be given more than they could possibly ever need, and yet in the moment of battle, that cannot be further away from his mind. For he sees something pretty. He sees something shiny. And he says, I I need that. And upon taking it, what does he do? Does he go and buy himself lavish things? No, he goes and buries it in his tent because he knows there's nothing else he can do with it at this point. And in this language, in this process, yet again, we see a story that's not just reserved to Joshua 7. It's Genesis 3. For in the book of Genesis, when we read of the fall of man, what happens to cause 
Adam and Eve to lose sight of the glorious paradise in which they're dwelling? What causes Adam and Eve to lose sight of the beautiful reign of God? It's a piece of fruit that looks like it, it probably would taste really good to eat. And we are told when they saw it, when they see that it was beautiful and good to eat, they forget where they are. They disregard the law of God and they eat, they partake. They do that which any reader understands is utter foolishness, it is ridiculous, and yet, and yet humanity does it over and over again. For in the moment of temptation, sin looks so good. It looks so delicious, it looks so enjoyable, it screams at us and says, you need this. Do not regard God's rule as something you can follow. You need to do this. You need to give in to that lust. You need to give in to whatever your heart tells you you want in that moment. And in that moment, it might taste sweet so briefly, but it leaves us empty. For as Proverbs speaks so regularly, it tastes sweet to the lips, and then it spoils. And it leaves us feeling ashamed and dirtied and foolish, and exposed. And that's exactly what Achan has done. Horrifically, in his action, he's not only left himself exposed, he's left his family exposed, for they are now brought in on the crime, buried in their tent. It is assumed by many that they know full well exactly what's happened to them. And so by Achan's sin, he doesn't simply try to keep it secret. He, he dirties his entire family, brings shame upon them all, And as he does so, he comes to this tragic end. From verse 22 through 26, the people of God again do exactly what God tells them to do. Having exposed sin and all of its folly, Joshua and these individuals rid the camp of this sin. For jumping down, in verse 24, Joshua and all of Israel took him, took Achan, the son of Zerah, silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire, and they have, after they had stoned him with the stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. If there's any questioning the holiness of God, if there's any questioning his unchanging standard, the story of Achan certainly removes all of that, doesn't it? For having been exposed as a fool, that is to say, having had his sin exposed as utter folly, Achan brings about the end that God promised him. That is the end that says, if you are accursed, you are under the curse. The accursed objects are gathered, the accursed things are then devoted to destruction. And in the same way the people of God were told to treat Jericho, they were now told to treat Jer Achan and his family. And so they're executed. Their things are burned. Why? Because that's the command of God. Because that's what's required to keep the people of God pure. Because that's what's required by God to, to demonstrate their, their faithfulness, their devotion. Because this is all according to God's plan. 
And it's in the moment of this destruction that suddenly again, the people of God who would resign themselves back to the wilderness have been brought now back into the promised land. In essence, we are back to Jericho all over again, aren't we? For here we see the reversal of what Jericho originally began with. For Jericho began with who being saved? Rahab, the harlot. Why was she saved? Because she was faithful. And so it didn't matter what her last name was. It didn't matter what her ethnicity was. Since she placed her, her faith in Yahweh, she was saved from the ban. Because God's standard doesn't change. And so God saved her. In the midst of that battle, however, Achan, however, disobeys God. And just as it did not matter the background of Rahab, it matters not the background of Achan. Doesn't matter that he came out of the wilderness, doesn't matter what tribe he's a part of, he disobeyed. He acted in a manner that brought a curse upon the people, and therefore he himself became accursed, and his life was brought to an end. As we consider this ending, as we consider what this says about God, there, there's so much we could say about how this applies to all of us. Certainly as an unbeliever, my hope is that this story strikes fear in your heart. That you see that God is not a God to be trifled with. He is holy, he will judge your sin, you will go to hell. If you remain faithless. But unbeliever, there is also tremendous encouragement in this. Because if you repent, that same God will forgive you. He cares not what your family heritage is. He cares not about what your backgrounds are. If you simply repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. And so, unbeliever, do that today. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us see in this story a, a, a tremendous reminder of the danger of sin. For it crouches around every corner. We are never far from the next temptation and we can never be so foolish as to think that we have it all figured out that it will never tempt us it will never strike us as beautiful no we are all vulnerable and weak and so we keep a constant eye fixed upon the holiness of god remembering what his standard is remembering that he will discipline those whom he loves yet even as we remember that holiness we do so with gratitude knowing that ultimately our sin is paid for knowing that even if worse comes to worse and our life ends, that if we are in Christ, we still have heaven before us. And so, believer, let us remember daily that our God is holy, therefore we're called to be holy. Let us not be apologetic about that holiness of God. Let us speak it boldly. And let us call others to see that same holiness, that same glory, understanding that it is only in serving that holy God that there's life. Let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. Thank you for this picture, God. Cause it to give us humility. Cause it to give us a better appreciation of who you are, God. And in so doing, cause it to bring your name greater glory. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.